Hey, what's up, 9 o'clock? How are we doing this morning, Rocky Peak? Hey, it is good to be with you once again. If you're here for the very first time, whether here in the Worship Center or joining us over on the Ridge, special welcome to you. Welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. We are excited not just that you're here, but they get to experience this time of service with us. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to lead us in our time of teaching. But before we do, I've got one announcement myself, a little bit of housekeeping. On Friday, Pastor Michael, our lead pastor, he emailed out to the entire congregation a letter that's casting a little bit of vision and giving some information about the future of our Ridge venue. And so if you haven't gotten that yet, go ahead and make sure you check your junk email folders as sometimes we slip in there. But if you're not on our email list for whatever reason, we also have hard copies of that letter at the starting point here at the Worship Center patio. So if you'd like to read that and see, the, uh, see what Pastor Michael's talking about, I'd encourage you to stop there on your way out. Now, with that, as we go into our time of teaching, inside those programs you got is a green and white message note sheet. That is a tool we provide each week so that you can follow along with the time of teaching. It's also provided so that we, you have some blank space to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you specifically to remember. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive right in. Jesus, I love that song that we ended with. Jesus, I love the declaration that we make that our confidence is in you, that when everything else changes, when we go through ups and downs, you never will, that you are our firm foundation. And what that means is that your character, the fact that you are good, the fact that you are powerful, the fact that you are love, the fact that you are merciful, forgiver, king, creator, all of that is what we stand firm on. And so this morning, as we've gathered as a community, as your family, as we open up your word, we pray that we would see that truth of who you are and how we can have confidence in you more clearly. Jesus, we thank you for your word, which is living and active, which is what transforms each and every one of our lives. As I often pray as the communicator, I pray that I would become much, much less. This is not about me or anything I'm doing, and I pray that you, as Christ, as King, revealed through your word, become much, much more to us. And it's in your name, King Jesus, that we all said, amen. Well, this morning, we're going to continue the series that we've been in, gosh, for 12 or 13 weeks now, called Metamorphosis Face-to-Face. And if you're brand new, what this series has been in has been based on a letter in the New Testament, the second half of our Bibles. And this is a letter that was written by a key leader in the early movement of Jesus, a man that we call the Apostle Paul. And this letter is addressed specifically to Christ followers in and around a major Roman city at the time, the city of Corinth. And the heart behind this letter is that as Paul goes through 2 Corinthians and he talks about God's epic vision for each of our lives, he often comes back to the Greek word metamorpho, which is where we get the English word metamorphosis, which means a slow yet a profound change. 
And the reason why Paul uses this word is because it is a beautiful, truthful picture of what it means to be a Christ follower. That when we give our lives to Jesus through a beautiful act of repentance, what then happens is we engage in a face-to-face relationship with Jesus himself in which he begins to lead us. And as we learn to listen and follow to his leading, to the leading of the Holy Spirit, we experience a metamorphosis. His power transforms us to be men and women who reflect his character. Now, this morning, before we jump in, something that we've been saying many times throughout this series is that you can't go anywhere in 2 Corinthians without dealing with the backdrop of the conflict between Paul and many people at the church of Corinth at the time. See, as we've talked about, in Paul's absence, after he had left, some false leaders, some false teachers have moved in, and they started turning the people in this church against the apostle Paul. They began challenging him his leadership saying he's not really an apostle, we shouldn't listen nor follow him. And one of the key arguments they made is because Paul's life was often a mess. Specifically, Paul experienced significant hardship, significant persecution. His mission, his call was not an easy one. And so to these leaders at Corinth, they were using that to say, look, he doesn't look like a winner because winners don't suffer. Winners don't experience hardship. Winners don't lose. And so with that backdrop, many times throughout this letter, if you've been with us, Paul addresses suffering and has called us to have a new paradigm when it comes to suffering. We've seen throughout our journey that Paul has used his suffering as an example that we as Christ followers, when we suffer, we are following in the footsteps of Jesus who led a life of suffering himself. A few weeks ago, we were, I was up here talking about how we are jars of clay. And again, Paul used this example of suffering to show that suffering reveals just how mighty God's power is. And so if you're brand new or if you've missed any of these messages, I would highly encourage you, go on our YouTube channel, search the Church of Rocky Peak, download the free Rocky Peak app, and watch these messages as they add context as we continue to move forward. And so this morning, once again, Paul is going to talk about how suffering is not a disqualifier to the service of God, but it is a necessary teacher for us to become the people God intends us to be. And specifically, Paul is going to highlight how suffering and hardship Hardship is used by God to transform the most important part of us, which is our character. And so there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Paul's Hardships. And if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got an app, turn them on. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter six, we're gonna start at verse three, and as I often say, get those pens ready, get the highlight function ready, because we're gonna mark this passage up. So starting at verse three. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Would you underline the word discredited? And again, in context, Paul is addressing the accusation that he's not a real apostle. 
We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Verse 4, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves. Would you underline that? We commend ourselves in every way. Now let's stop right there because this is interesting as we dig into it. And so the word commend often can strike this image that is Paul standing up here going, hey, I'm awesome. And my ministry is awesome. You are wrong about me. And so we need to dig deeper into the original language and what Paul is saying. This word commend is very similar to something I taught on back in chapter one when Paul says that we boast, our boast is this. And so he's not speaking with an attitude of arrogance, but he is speaking with an attitude of confidence. But what we're going to see throughout the rest of the passage is that the confidence does not come in anything he has done, but his confidence come in what Jesus has done through him and what Jesus has been transforming him to be. And so in essence, to the Corinthians, what Paul is addressing is they look at Paul's life, they look at the external, and they would say, you are not successful. If you were really an apostle of God, you would have an empire. People would be flocking from places to listen to you. You would be on multiple book tours. You would have syndicated talk shows. Everybody would want to hear from the Apostle Paul. And in our eyes, all you do is suffer and lose. And so at the beginning, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. See, we are proud of the work that we have done. But he is going to dig deeper, not because of what we've externally achieved, but because of how much we've experienced Jesus through it and who he has transformed us to be. And so to continue to unpack this, Paul is now going to go into a list of his hardships. Now in chapter 11, he's going to go into these in more detail, but he's going to begin generally and then get more specific into the significant hardships he's experienced as an apostle. So again, let's go back to verse 4. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses. Verse 5, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Now, let's pause right there. Can we all agree that the Apostle Paul has not lived a Disney movie life? Can we all agree that, or excuse me, can you, can you join me in the emotional expression that I'm very glad that my calling is not the Apostle Paul's calling? Because when we look at his life in the New Testament, when we look at his journeys in the, uh, we look at his journeys in the book of Acts, when he describes what has happened to him, it's almost unimaginable the hardship that Paul has experienced. He is not, he is not exaggerating when he says that because of preaching Jesus, he has been beat and whipped. He has been imprisoned. He has been stoned. In fact, in Acts, he was on a boat that sang. Who does that happen to? Paul has experienced so many hardships. And before we move on, I want to ask you to make an emotional connection with Paul's hardships. If you experience a fraction of the hardships that Paul has experienced emotionally, what would your outlook on life be like? How would you respond to these hardships? 
You know, I was writing out my own answer yesterday morning as I was preparing for this, and because of my pride and sin, my answer was easy. I would be angry. I would be frustrated. I would be bitter. Not just at the Corinthians, not just at the Romans, not just at the people that oppose me. I would be angry at God. Isn't this the mission you've called me to do? Isn't this what you've asked me to do? Am I not being obedient enough? Why is this so hard? And as we've seen in Paul's letters, he's a normal human being. Those emotions have come into his head. He's experienced that anger, that frustration, that bitterness. Several weeks ago, we were, I was talking about the fact that Paul is showing Christ's supernatural mercy to the Corinthians. And I remember bringing up to the fact that I would have quit on the Corinthians a long time ago. And there were times when Paul said, when you hear in Paul's emotions, oh, that sounded like a great option, but the power of God keeps me serving. And so on that note, this is why Paul can boast or where his confidence comes from is that it is in significant hardship that the power of Jesus has transformed the core of who he is. And so as we continue reading, now that Paul has listed his hardships, he is now gonna list how he has responded to these hardships because of the power of Jesus. Verse seven, in purity. Would you underline that? In purity, which this is a bigger definition than often we, often we picture with that word, that this means righteousness. This means in right character. In purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God. Would you underline that phrase, power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. And so as Paul talks about his hardships his point and his celebration is that because of the great power of King Jesus, he has responded to these hardships with godly character, with a Christ-like character, not allowing anger, bitterness, frustration, and hatred to become the state of his heart, but allowing the Lord to transform him to reflect Jesus' character in the hardest of circumstances. Now, character is the central word, the word of the day, if you will, of our passage this morning. And so before we move forward, we need to really understand what we mean by a godly or a Christ-like character. Because the truth of the matter is that word gets used a lot as a description. This is a person of good character. Businesses often use it in their vision statements. We handle things with character. But the reality is that for many people, they, the different people define what it means to have good character differently. And so let's unpack that a little bit. If you were to ask our culture at large, let's get out of church culture for a minute, how would you define character? I would say that a consensus in our culture is that a character is a person of character is a good person that does good things. So then a follow-up question, what does good mean? And what we find out is the definition of good 
changes based on the person or the situation. Being a good person and doing good things is a moving target. What used to be good yesterday is no longer considered good in our culture. What is considered good today may likely not be good the next day, and it continually changes, or it's different, again, depending on the context or the situation. But ultimately, the emphasis becomes on your actions. If you do good things, that will make you a good person. There is a heavy emphasis on the external, hopefully changing the internal. And then if we move it back into the church or religious world, what we often see is that our definition of character isn't all that different. Often in the church world, what does it mean to have a godly or a Christ-like character is, oh, you follow God's rules. You do what the Bible says to do. You don't do what the Bible says not to do. You go to church regularly. In public at church, you use good language. You sign up to volunteer even though you have no intention on actually doing it. You affirm good, godly things when you're together on a Sunday morning. But once you leave this place, you've done your good character duties and you can go back to your regular life. But often in the spiritual context, it's the same view. If you do the holy things, then that will make you a holy, a godly person. And once again, the emphasis is on the external. Do first, then you will become. And so what Paul is showing us in his example, in the example of Jesus, as we've often been seeing throughout the series, is a radical new paradigm that we can do the right things with the absolute wrong heart. And that is not what God is after. God is not looking for people who simply do the right things but are harboring evil hearts. That is not character. What Paul is showing us is that character, first and foremost, is in the inside. It is our identity. It is who we are. And that Christ-like character goes from the inside out, not the outside in. And so we no longer do these externals because we think it's simply the right thing to do or we need to check off a Christian box, but we do them as an overflow of who God is transforming us to be. And so if I were to put this in a definition, what does it mean to have a Christ-like character? I would define it as being a single-minded commitment. A single-minded commitment, meaning this is the ultimate priority of a person to know and experience the real Jesus. It is a single-minded commitment to know and experience the real Jesus. 
Because when we regularly know and experience Jesus is when we experience his power to transform each and every one of us. And when we are transformed, it is an internal transformation that overflows into the external. And so if you look back at these character traits in verse 6, these are not only Paul's character traits, but this is the character of Jesus himself. In purity, holiness, that is how Jesus led his life. In understanding, Jesus showed an empathy. He connected with people. It didn't mean he always accepted and agreed with them or agreed with their sin, but he always aimed to connect and grow and serve with them in patience and kindness. And I got to be honest, as I've been reading through this passage, those two words, patience and kindness, have been hugely convicting to me. Because I realize that we teach these to our children to be good character traits, and then at some point as adults, we often abandon them. See, to be patient means to be reactive. means it's how we respond to hardship and difficult people. And what we see in the life of Jesus is that he showed patience, not just to his followers, not just to his inner circle, but to those who were most vehemently and violent against us. And on that same note, he did the same with kindness, which is a proactive trait, that he loved and he showed kindness. In, understand, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit that Jesus often, often sought the presence of God, to listen and follow to the leading of God's Spirit in his life. In sincere love, what it means that God sincerely loves each and every one of us is that he is committed to us no matter our level of commitment to him, no matter our level of sin, that we are all God's creation and no matter how vile or far we are, we are all capable of experiencing this transformation. Think about how personal that point is to the Apostle Paul. That as I've said before, and I don't say this lightly, before Paul was transformed, he was a monster. There is blood of Christian brothers and sisters on his hands. The early church feared Paul, and yet God still loved him and changed his life. In truthful speech and in the power of God, Jesus never withheld truth. Sometimes we get afraid in the Christian world that if we treat people with patience and kindness, it means that we're not going to speak God's truth to them. No, we are still called to speak truth, but what we see in the example of Paul and what we see in the example of Jesus is we can still speak holy truth that is backed up by holy mercy and serving them and loving them. This is the example of Jesus and so again, as I had you underline, in the power of God, what Paul makes very clear is that none of these character traits are natural or self-generated. He is not responding to the hardship in these ways because of any level of self-control, because of any level of planning, because of any positive thinking on his part. He is only able to respond with the character of Jesus because of the power of Jesus that he is regularly experiencing through his regular rhythms of listening and following to Jesus in his life. 
You know, last week, if you were here, Michael talked about the fact that we are ambassadors for Jesus, that we go out to speak for Jesus, to represent Jesus. And there are times when that involves our literal words, but how do we speak and represent to Jesus to a world that doesn't know him? By showing them the character of Jesus. And we show them that by becoming that type of character through the power of Jesus. And then lastly in that verse, he talks about weapons of righteousness. And there's a cultural context to this, that for a Roman soldier to be fully equipped for battle, they were carrying things in both hands. Often in the left hand would be a defensive weapon, like a shield. Often in the right hand would be an offensive weapon, like a sword or a spear. But the point that Paul is making that's understood to his original readers is that a soldier would not be fully prepared without holding weapons in both his hands. And so Paul is saying that Christ followers our weapons is our character. Our weapon is our righteousness. And this leads me to something I've said many, many times before because it's something I need to continually be reminded of in my own life because of my own sin and my own pride that Christ followers, the New Testament makes it clear that we are at war. This is not peacetime. We are at war, but the New Testament also makes it very clear that the way we fight as Christ followers is not how the world fights. The world fights with sin. The world fights with darkness and anger and bitterness and violence in devaluing people's humanity in power or the perception of power in haves and have-nots and I'm better than you and you shouldn't be. The world bullies people into submission. And oftentimes, as Christ followers, we try to fight the same way. I'm going to win somebody for Jesus. I'm going to win their heart for Jesus by beating them into submission, by dragging them through the mud. Then they will see that Jesus loves them. This is not the only time in the New Testament in which the Apostle Paul uses the imagery of warfare. Some of you are familiar with the, at the end of his letter to the Ephesians, he talks about putting on the armor of God. But every time the New Testament uses the language of warfare, it talks about that we fight through our character. The armor and the weapons in Ephesians are the character of God. And it's by fighting in that way, fighting the same way that Jesus fought, that the world is changed for the kingdom. We see this truth in the history of the early church. What I want to do briefly is I want to ask us to put on our historian hats, and we're going to go back to the first three centuries. See, as we read in 2 Corinthians, this was likely written between 50 and 60 AD. Some scholars think right there in the middle, 54 or 55 and already, as we read in 2 Corinthians, the early church, the movement of Jesus, is experiencing significant persecution from the Roman government. We see this throughout the New Testament letter. Peter writes about that in his letters, that they are dealing with significant suffering. Shortly after 2 Corinthians, shortly after the New Testament itself was written, historically, the aggression and persecution of the Roman Empire against the Christian faith grew 
grew exponentially. One of the most famous catalysts that you would remember from your high school history classes is that when Rome burned in 64 AD, when Nero let Rome burn, who became the scapegoats for that destruction? The church. Christians, and that began to lead to more widespread persecution. In the first three centuries, it was mind-boggling why anyone would ever become a Christ follower. Last week, Michael talked about the social and political losses by not bowing your knee to Caesar, by not bowing your knee to the Greek and Roman gods. But now, as this persecution intensifies, Christians were violently and aggressively hated by the most powerful empire in the world at the time. A famous Roman historian, Tacitus, says that, wrote that Christians were hated for their abomination and for promoting a deadly and dangerous superstition. There was another Roman historian that wrote that Christians were hated because they carried a hatred of the human race because they threatened our way of life. And yet, in the first three centuries, this movement, the church, inexplicably grew. And it kept growing. And what's fascinating as you look at it through a historical perspective is that it didn't grow through just one type of person. The movement of God grew and it shattered ethnic and racial barriers. The movement of God grew and it shattered gender barriers. The movement of God grew and it shattered social and wealth class barriers. The movement of God grew and it shattered geographical barriers. It was spread as the Roman government would say, like a cancer throughout their empire. And the question would be, why? In the face of such hardship, in the face of such persecution, how did this movement grow? And the answer that the historians keep coming back to is it grew because of the character of the people in the movement. Several years ago, I was in a lecture on the first three centuries of the church. And the lecturer made this point that there were things about the life of the church that were absolutely repulsive to Roman culture. A belief in one God, a sexual ethic of sexual purity, many things that we would consider our moral ethic were absolutely repulsive to the Roman world. And yet, at the same time, there were things about a, a transformed Christian's character that were absolutely engaging to a world that hated them. And he listed out three key things. One, a empire that hated the early movement of Jesus had to commend them for being peacemakers. One historian wrote that the Roman Empire could not deny, and these were the words they used, how well these Christ followers loved the very people that were murdering them. And how they chose not to retaliate, but to respond in peace. A second thing is that the Roman world who hated them could not deny how generous they were with their resources, with their money, with their time. And not just in their community, but again, with other Romans, with their hated enemies, with people that were violently opposed to them. And a third part of their character, a third part of their character that was known to the Roman world was how well they suffered that no matter what crushing blow or defeat they experienced, 
They grew in hope. They grew in their character. They didn't abandon their beliefs. They continued to make peace where they could. And so what do we see in the early history of the church? We see Christ followers fighting a war with the weapons that Jesus has given us and we see the difference that it makes. And I don't say this from a Western perspective, but I say this from a theological perspective. We are now standing here some 2,000 years later and the Roman Empire is a memory. See, power comes and power goes, but the character of God is for all of eternity. That is why this matters. It is not the external that matters. It is the internal, the state of our hearts. Because things change. And Paul is going to go on in the next several verses to talk about the ups and downs, the circumstantial changes, and why it's important to develop a Christ-like character that will be stable throughout all of these changes. So in verse 8, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, Genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, and yet not beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. There will be ups, there will be downs, there will be seasons of good, there will be seasons of suffering, but what makes the difference in all of these scenarios is the state of our character. And he goes on in verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open our hearts wide, and open wide our hearts to you. Paul has suffered a lot of character assassination. But again, his confidence is, I know who God is. I know who God is transforming me into being. You have seen me live that out, not just in good, but in the midst of significant hardship. I have held nothing back. Verse 12, we are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. Would you underline that last part? But you are withholding yours from us. And so in love and in grace, Paul is saying, you have seen my character. But what is blinding you is a flaw in your character. And the honest truth of the way that sin blinds me the way that my pride blinds me. We talk often about filters. Well, often my sinful filters distort the way I view myself and my own character. One of the awful things about sin is that what are true character flaws in my life, I often don't see them as such. In fact, often I see those flaws as me doing the right thing. Remember, the Apostle Paul was someone who led many Christians to their death and thought that that was the best way he could serve God. The Corinthians, many of them, think that they are doing the godly thing by opposing God, by opposing, excuse me, opposing Paul, by opposing his Jesus. What Paul is saying is that your character has filtered your sight and you need to open up your heart because it is not the external that matters, it is the internal that God desires to transform. That reminded me 
of an encounter that Jesus had there in your note sheet in Mark chapter 10. A little bit of context for this. A rich young man, or in some Bibles, a rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. And in the conversation, he asks Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to be a part of the kingdom of God? And so Jesus responds, what have you heard? And he answers, well, follow the commandments. And he says, I've been doing that. I've been following the spiritual rules. I've been doing the right thing. Is that it? And then we go to this passage. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Again, keep that in focus. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Now, for those of you that are familiar with this account, Sometimes we take this that Jesus is indicting having riches and resources. That's not what he's saying. One thing you lack is a direct, re is a direct reference to this man's character. There is an issue with your character. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And so there below that, I like how N.T. Wright comments on this. Here is the real challenge, not just to add one or two more commandments or to set the moral bar a little higher. What we've been talking about, the character is not built on doing, quote, the right things, but to become a different sort of person altogether. Jesus is challenging the young man to a transformation of character. For a start, it is a call, not to specific acts of behavior, but to a type of character. For another thing, it is a call to see oneself as having a role to play within a story. This is God's epic vision, a story where to join with the first point, there is one supreme character whose life it is to be followed. And then finally in verse 13, as a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Would you underline that? I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. This is again Paul modeling the character of Jesus. That no matter the conflict, no matter the hardship, no matter the level of commitment or lack of commitment that the Church of Corinthian has towards Paul, Paul has not stopped seeing and regarding them as family. And this is what we talked about several weeks ago as Paul talked about God's power to show us mercy is that Paul is very aware at all times that he is the recipient of great mercy, that just as Jesus was committed to us, even when we didn't deserve it, even when we were as far away from him as possible, he did not abandon us, and Paul is modeling the same to Corinth. And so that's our passage today. And so as we move forward, what I want to do in the time that we have left is I want to talk about this awareness and this development of having a character that models the character of Jesus. But not just in the general sense, from this passage, Paul is specifically talking about how hardship, how difficult times becomes a great tool to developing a character like Jesus. And so I want to unpack that a little bit further. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Discovering Authentic Character, and your fill-in is this. Hardship reveals our true character. 
hardship reveals our true character. And let me explain a little of what I mean. It is easy to think, to say, and to believe that we will think, act, and respond the right way in moments of relative peace. When the stress levels are very calm, when the roof isn't caving in or the earth is shaking, when the weight of the world is not on our shoulders, when we are not hurting and experiencing significant pain, it is easy again to plan, to think, to even wholeheartedly believe that we will respond the right way. But the truth of the matter is when we don't have the time to think of our response, when things happen suddenly, as hardship often does, our natural reaction is often an indication of the state of our hearts. Hardship is an opportunity to see the truth about ourselves. Let me illustrate this with an illustration that I used about three years ago, but I really like it, and so I want to bring it back for our time this morning. So one of my favorite television shows of all time is the American version of The Office with Steve Carell. And if you're not familiar with The Office, it's a fake documentary that follows like a mid-tier paper supply company in Pennsylvania, and that may sound mind-numbingly boring if you've never seen the show, but I love it, it's hilarious. And in particular, there's an episode that always jumps out to me in its third season in which an actual bat gets stuck in their office. And they spend the whole episode trying to figure out how to deal with this because obviously, think about it, if there's a bat in your home, in your workspace, that will raise certain emotions. And so in this one particular scene, there's a character, uh, this character played by Mindy Kaling, she's Kelly Kapoor in this, and she says one thing, you know, let's just watch the clip, let's just... Now, the reason I use this clip to highlight this point is that when things were relatively calm, she said one thing, right? And I guarantee you, she believed it. But when things got hard and stressful, what came out? Her truth. I like, again, how N.T. Wright puts it on your note sheet. When you're suddenly put to the test, and you don't have time to think about how you're coming across, your real nature will come out. That's why character needs to go all the way through. Whatever fills you will spill out of you. That's good, isn't it? And so this is why if we want to become a person of, of Christ-like, of godly character, the first step is not to examine what are our actions and what are we doing, but the first step is to examine the state of our heart. Something that Michael says often that I absolutely adore is that authenticity is the first step of transformation. 
And so we need to reflect on this, particularly what does our hardship reveal about the state of our character? And so practically speaking, I want to encourage you to do an exercise. And it's similar to something I've been encouraging us all to do throughout this whole series. And that's this, in sometime in the next 24 hours, I want to encourage you to carve out some unrushed time to enter into the presence of God, one-on-one, whether that's in your home, on a walk in your neighborhood, on a drive, at Starbucks with some good noise-canceling headphones out, whatever works for you. But I want to encourage you to go before the presence of God, and specifically, I want you to bring your Bible, because it is the Word that is living and active, and it is the Word that transforms us. And I want you to spend a few moments reading and rereading verses 6 and 7, these character attributes, and reflecting on the fact that this is who Jesus is, and this is who Jesus is calling me to be. This is the character of God, and this is the character that he transforms my heart into displaying. And then with that, what I want you to do is I want you to focus specifically on the issue of anger. See, we get angry because for whatever reason that angers us, anger is a response to hardship, isn't it? And so for many of us, when we get angry, it is because we perceive or is because we are experiencing a hardship. And so I want you to reflect on your anger. I want you specifically to reflect on what it is that makes you angry. Whether it is people, whether it is situations, whether it is certain words or triggers, whether it is groups of people, or whether it is cultural or social things that are going on. And hear me clearly that getting angry is not always wrong. But then the second thing I want you to reflect on is how do you respond in your anger? Do you respond with the character traits in verse 6 and 7? Or do we respond with the weapons of our world? And this may need to be more than one conversation between you and God. This may need to be an opportunity for you to get angry at God. You are safe. You can be honest. He is not shaken and he will not abandon you. And for some of us, something like this may sound intimidating, but hear my heart very clearly that being transparent and authentic before Jesus is not for Jesus to shame and guilt us, but it is for him him to free us, to transform us, to now live and display his character. So that's the first truth I want to unpack. The second fill-in is this. Hardship reveals Jesus' beautiful character. Hardship reveals Jesus' beautiful character. And there's two main parts to this point. That for many of us, if we were asked, how would you describe the character of Jesus? We would say things that are beautifully true. We would say that the character of Jesus is is a character of love 
is a character that is good, is a character that is powerful, is a character that is hopeful, is a character that brings mercy, is a character that brings authority. And again, that is good. But as I've been asking, we need to ask a follow-up question. How do we verify that that's true? How do we know that that really is who Jesus is, that really is his character? And what we see is the evidence is his life, not just how he lived his life, but in how he suffered. In the three-ish years of the ministry of Jesus, a key mark of his ministry was suffering that Jesus did not live an easy life. His call was not an easy call. And it is in his suffering that we see the beauty and the truth of his heart. We see the beauty of his character. And so for an example, I put in Luke chapter 23 in your note sheet, this is as Jesus is being crucified and dying on the cross. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the other criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And let's stop right there. So contextually, the human Jesus is at his absolute lowest point. He has been arrested. He has been abandoned by his closest friends and followers. One who swore and promised that he would never abandon Jesus. He has been severely beaten and physically brutalized. He has had to carry his cross throughout public towns. He has been the victim of mockery and scorn. He has been nailed to a cross, a Roman Roman cross is a torture device in which you slowly suffocate. He is suffering in full view of people that are celebrating and cheering the fact that he will die. And at his absolute lowest point, what do we see in his character? Love, goodness, mercy, hope. For the people that were the farthest from, for the people that deserved it the least, hardship reveals the beauty of Jesus' character. And that leads me to the second component of this point. It is that Jesus, it is that character which enters into our suffering. A point that Paul has clearly made throughout the entire letter as he's talked often about suffering, is that Jesus is not distant in our suffering, but he has entered into our suffering with us. That as we cry, as we scream, as we mourn the hurt and breakdown of injustices, the hurt and scarring of a breakdown of relationships, the hurt that comes from the breakdown of our physical, our mental, our emotional bodies, as we hurt and mourn the loss, or as we mourn the aggression of a culture that seemingly is becoming more hostile to the name of Jesus, what we know is that it is the presence of Jesus and the character of Jesus that wraps his fatherly arms around us in the midst of our suffering to give us what we don't have. 
his character, his identity. I love there in John 16 in your note sheet, Jesus is talking to his disciples about hardship and the truth that life is going to get hard and that's going to cause people to fall away from me. And he encourages them by this, I have told you these things so that you may have peace, which is not something that Jesus does, it's who he is that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I am with you in your hardship. And what is beautiful in what the apostle is teaching us is that it gives us a deeper meaning, not just in general of the character of God, but often in the church world, it gives us a more beautiful and deeper meaning of a common church phrase, and that is to say that God is good. God is good. But often we find ourselves only using it when we are delivered, when we are set free, when we are provided for. And hear me clearly, yes, in those moments, let's declare and celebrate God is good. But what this really means is that the character of Jesus is with us in our sufferings. So even in those moments when the hardship has not been lifted, even when deliverance hasn't come, even when we feel like we lack the resources, lack the strength, lack the encouragement, our Jesus is present with us to teach us a new meaning of what it means that he is good. I would never wish hardship upon any of you, but it is amazing how often I hear the stories from you that it is in the midst of your most difficult and your most suffering of seasons in which you have understood more deeply the beauty of the character of God. There are many of you that would say, I would never wish that season upon everybody. I hope and I pray I never experience anything like that, but I will never trade what it taught me about the heart of Jesus. Let me illustrate this with just a story from my own life. And if I may, I want to be transparent with you as my family. That for the last several months, my family and I, we've been going through a season of significant hardship. Thankfully, it's not one to do relationally amongst each other, but as, as, as it often happens with hardship, it's dealing with the pain and the ramifications of external circumstances outside of our control that is affecting us. And so this past week, as I was driving, I had my phone playing music on shuffle, as I often do, and a particular song came on by a worship artist named Phil Wickham. And it's a song called Beautiful, or You're Beautiful, depending on the album that you look at. And this, was a song, this is a song that I absolutely adore. But I gotta be honest, I, oh, I completely forgot that I owned it. I have a lot of music, and it got buried inside my phone somewhere. And so, as I was listening to this song, it was the first time in a while that I'd heard it. And I remembered why I feel so connected to this song that throughout the course of his lyrics, what he is doing is he is declaring the beauty of our Jesus. And he does it in different ways. He talks about Jesus' power as creator and says that is beautiful. He talks about the power of Jesus' character and he says that that is beautiful. And in the song, he talks about the beauty of the character of Jesus in the deepest of sufferings. And so in particular, it was these lyrics that caught me 
He writes, I see you there hanging on a tree. You bled and then you died, but then you rose again for me. And now you are sitting on your heavenly throne and soon we will be coming home because you're beautiful. He goes on, when we arrive at eternity shore where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we're gonna enter as the wedding bells ring, your bride, your church, Christ followers, we are gonna come together and we're gonna see that you are beautiful. And as I was listening to the song, I parked my car and I began crying tears of joy, not because my situation has changed and the hardship has been lifted. I began crying tears of joy because I found myself declaring, it's true. It is true. You are beautiful. You are good. And you are present with me. I was being transformed by the truth of Jesus' character. Now that I've read the lyrics a little bit, what I'd like to do is I just want to play that snippet of the song so we can hear it together. That last section gets me every time. And so it's the presence of God that transforms our character, that again reveals deeply who he really is. And so with that, briefly, as we wrap up our time, I've got one final section for you. A transformed character, and your feeling is this. Character is transformed by listening and following to Jesus' leading. If we want to be a people of Christ-like character, it happens by being in the presence of Jesus. And specifically, it happens there, your next fill-in, how do we listen to his leading? Through spiritual disciplines. I love this phrase. Love the phrase spiritual disciplines. And I've learned to love it because I gotta be honest, at the beginning of my Christian life, this phrase terrified me. Because I immediately, like many of us does, took the word discipline as meaning being disciplined. And as somebody who has grown up as and still struggles with being loudmouthed, sarcastic, speaking before I think, and thinking that I'm a lot funnier than I really am, believe me, I know what it's like to be rightfully disciplined at many different places in life. But that's not what we're talking about here. 
See, some of us have come out of religious paradigms that to spend time with God is God yelling and guilting and shaming you. That's what it means to be a man or woman after God's own heart, that you live with a crushing guilt at all time. That is not at all what this means. What discipline means, and I touched on this a few weeks ago, discipline is an intentional commitment. To be disciplined in any of our relationships is absolutely necessary for them to be healthy and strive and thrive. If you want to be a good friend, a good coworker, a good member of your neighborhood, a good part of your church community, a good spouse, a good parent, a good son and daughter, you need discipline because discipline is commitment because emotions come and emotions go and our relationships cannot be dictated on whether we feel like it or not. Relationships are built on the health and foundation of commitments. And so spiritual disciplines are us as Christ followers committing to finding and spending time with the Lord in various ways, reading the word, worshiping prayer, not to check off a box of our Christian to-do list, but to know that it is in this commitment in which I will experience the power of Jesus and my heart will be transformed to reflect his. And so some of you have a great rhythm already. For others of you, my encouragement as we leave this passage is joyfully, beautifully, let's get to work. And let's start discovering how we're wired and the best way to seek God for your situation through spiritual disciplines. I like how one of my heroes, Dallas Willard, puts it there, and you know she... A major service of the spiritual disciplines is to cause the duplicity and malice that are buried in our will and character to surface and be dealt with. Those disciplines make room for the word and the spirit to work in us. What happens through our spiritual disciplines, through our encountering Jesus, he removes the darkness and he replaces it with his light. That is how we listen and follow. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out as we close out our services with one final song. As we also take this time for our ushers, they're going to come forward to receive our tithes, our gifts, and our offerings. As we go into this song, it's a song that we've been singing many times throughout this series. It's kind of become the unofficial anthem of this series as we declare the goodness of God. And as we go into God's presence through this time, as we sing these words, remember, we are not only celebrating the character of God, celebrating that God is good and that his goodness ran after us even when we are far away from him but let us also celebrate the fact that as he is he transforms us to be that we can be not perfect but good because his character fills our hearts amen let's pray jesus you are good jesus you are good Whenever the world is not, whenever our sin is not, whenever things are falling apart, you are still good. Your goodness delivers. Your goodness heals. Your goodness provides. But ultimately, we are always given your presence to experience the beauty of your character. And so Jesus, remind us through your word, remind us through the apostles' teaching that what you care when it comes to our lives is not how we look, but the state of our hearts that this would be a catalyst to experience a new level of growth and transformation in which our hearts are transformed to resemble your beautiful character. 
And so we thank you for these declarations. We thank you for the tithes and the gifts and the faithfulness of the people funding your movement here at Rocky Peak. And it's in your precious name we all said, amen. Let's stand together. You know, as I think back on our passage, something that has just been beautifully encouraging to me is again, as we've been emphasizing verses six and seven, these traits of character that as Paul shares how God has transformed his character, he is not doing it in a cadence of, I'm an extraordinary case. What Paul is doing is he's saying, I'm absolutely ordinary. What's changed in my character is God's vision for each and every one of us. And so as we read those character traits of responding to hardship in purity by the leading of the Holy Spirit with patience and kindness and understanding, this is who God empowers you to be. And so as we sang that song that the goodness of God ran after us, we want to be a people who are continually being transformed so we can take that goodness, that good character, and run after others in our lives and in our world who have yet to experience that. And so as we leave Rocky Peak, my prayer for all of us, myself included, is that as we look back in the days and the weeks and the months and years to come, that we look back on this section of the scripture and we see that because of that passage, my life experienced significant transformation. That was the catalyst for a new level of character that God showed me new beauty in who he is and who he transforms me to be. Amen? If you'd like some prayer before you leave this place this morning, whether here in the worship center or over in the ridge, alongside that wall to my right, your left, are some amazing men and women from our prayer ministry. They would love to pray with you. Their prayers are powerful. Next week, I really hope you can join us. Michael's going to be back continuing our series. And it's a really interesting topic on the power of influence, that who is really influencing us and what type of influence do we have on those around us. So I hope you can join us. We love you, Rocky Peak. I'll see you then.